classes and women of all nationalities are oppressed on the basis of their sex. And we are uniting on that basis to struggle for our freedom. beginning of the 1970s, the gender equality and feminist movements were sweeping across the nation, inspired by the activism seen in the civil rights movement. Several young women were taking to the streets to demand equal pay and reproductive rights. In Texas at the time, abortion was illegal in almost all cases. That law was struck down in 1973 when a Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade, ruled that the government couldn't place an undue burden on a woman's rights to an abortion at certain stages of pregnancy. Now, Texas's most recent abortion restriction, Senate Bill 8, and a conservative majority Supreme Court threatened to repeal the precedent that Roe set. Much like the alums of the past, current students at UT and other universities are advocating against it. and this is from the archives for the Daily Texan. In this episode, we explore the origins of the reproductive rights movement here at UT and how students are fighting for the same rights 50 years later. While the future of the constitutional right to an abortion remains in question, the court case that secured it all to begin with started right here at the University of Texas with a group of student activists. They called themselves the Women's Liberation Movement. And although they didn't know it at the time, their activism would come to shape history of reproductive rights in the entire nation. You know, like I say, I, did, I had no idea at the time this was gonna be kind of historic. We were just, you know, doing what we were doing um, to fix something that was really broken. That was Victoria Foe, one of the founding members of the Women's Liberation Movement here at UT. She now teaches and researches molecular biology at the University of Washington. During her time at the university, Foe worked at the alternative student news publication, The RAG. They covered issues that other student publications didn't, like the Vietnam War protests, racial integration, and the New Left movement. There she met fellow biology major and fellow staffer, Judy Smith. They decided to form the Women's Liberation Movement group and initially met in 1968 at Judy Smith's house. Foe said that they really wanted to find the best way to help women students succeed in the university setting. To Judy and I, it seemed like, well, if the main problem was women wasn't worth educating women because they would just children and then their responsibilities would be to their families. Well, there was a solution to that and that was birth control. Until the late 1970s, the University Health Center would not give birth control to women who couldn't prove they were married. Foe and Smith decided to compile reproductive care resources themselves and opened the Women's Liberation Birth Control Information Center in a small room near the RAG's offices on Guadalupe Street in October 1969. But birth control medication was just not an option for some women. 
They were already pregnant, and Fo said they were desperate not to be. Absolutely. I mean, desperation is really probably the key word one can use to describe the women, just desperate. So um, we, Judy Smith and I, went and interviewed some doctors in Mexico on the border who performed abortions to see if we could find safe medical clinics. Foe and Smith worked out a $200 rate for the students that they referred to the clinic. Foe said students with the Women's Liberation Movement volunteered in the center and referred women to the doctors that could provide them with the care they needed. Barbara Hines was another student who helped at the center. She attended UT from 1965 to 1970 for Latin American studies, and now she teaches immigration law at UT. Hines helped spread awareness about the center throughout campus by putting ads in the paper and presenting in classes. But she said many people were not receptive or even outright hostile to their ideas. And, you know, one of the things um, I will never, you know, some guy got up and said, well, the reason you're in women's liberation is you're also ugly and you don't shave your legs and you can't find a boyfriend. Yeah. So, I mean, it just kind of gives you an idea of what the level of um, ignorance was at that point. Hines said that she would see at least three to four women coming into the center during her shift. She said she could tell the center was being surveilled, especially because when she would pick up the calls on the hotline, she could hear three clicks of the receiver instead of the usual two. We were open like something one to five in the afternoon. And so we would be one person sitting in this office. We also answered the telephone, although there was a click, click, click on the telephone. And so the you know FBI or whoever was monitoring this information. So we would tell people that they needed to come in, that we didn't give information over the telephone. The Briscoe Center now stores hundreds of pages of surveillance reports that police compiled over various students and activist groups, including on Hines, Foe, and Smith. At the time, the state abortion laws said that anyone who furnished the means for procuring an abortion could be fined up to $1,000. This is much like the current Senate bill, which allows private citizens to sue anyone who aids or abets the performance or inducement of an abortion for a $10,000 civil lawsuit. I mean, and so in that sense, it's very similar to what's happening now, except, you know, now, you know, people can denounce anybody. I mean, the law now is even in some ways worse. Smith and Foe were worried about being prosecuted for helping women find doctors who perform abortions. Judy Smith's boyfriend at the time, Jim Wheelis, knew somebody who could help advise them, a friend he met at UT Law School, Sarah Weddington. In Weddington's autobiography, A Question of Choice, she says UT's activism and her friendship with Judy Smith were the start of her journey into the legality of abortion. Her book tells about when the group reached out to her. Carly Rose reads for Sarah Weddington. Abortion had never been a topic in any of my law classes, and I had not been involved in any criminal cases since becoming licensed as a lawyer. I wanted to help the project continue and succeed, so I began spending more time in the UT Law Library, meeting with project volunteers, and talking to law professors, law students, and other lawyers. This is how Weddington began to construct her legal argument for Roe versus Wade. 
So a pregnancy to a woman is perhaps one of the most determinative aspects of her life. It disrupts her, her body, it disrupts her education, it disrupts her employment, and it often disrupts her entire family life. And we feel that because of the impact on the woman, this certainly, in as far as there are any rights which are fundamental, is a matter which is of such fundamental and basic concern to the woman involved that she should be allowed to make the choice as to whether to continue or to terminate her pregnancy. Fifty years after the landmark Supreme Court case, the Feminist Action Project advocates for those same rights. The UT student group organized two protests this past month at the Capitol with the help of other activists from Texas State, only days after SB8 took effect. Anika Srinath is part of the project and was at the protest on September 10th. She is a junior biochemistry major. Between her and the other members there, they seem to agree that this bill felt like it violated their basic human rights. I know a lot of people already feel powerless because you can't do anything about a pandemic. And so when you don't even have basic rights, it creates this sense of like, do I have any control over my own life? Lee Gary was in the Capitol Rotunda with 50 other people. They study nursing at Texas State in San Marcos. They came up to Austin with two of their friends that Friday and had only one word to describe their feelings towards the bill, outrage. It's definitely a, a huge deal to me because that's just basic rights. And it's just the choice that really matters to me. Srinath said it was easy to rally people from across the state using social media. She said it was just a matter of showing people who are passionate about the issue that they can do something about it. All we had to do was post a flyer on social media and people showed up. Mm -hmm. So you just need to give people, I think you need, yeah, you need to tell people you can do this. Because like when last Wednesday when we showed up and we saw no one else here, we were like, do we go home? And then we realized like, why? You know, like we can do this. And so once we realized that it's possible, like, this is so easy to make happen. People just need to know they can. Fo said that even though they didn't have tools like social media back in the 1970s, that it really just takes a reminder for people to know that they can make a change. If there is something that's really unjust that's going on in society, you don't sit around and wait for somehow the experts to come and fix it, you know? I think that's the main thing for me is just to remember that the world is made better by people who care about things. For people not to be discouraged that they should jump in and make the world better themselves, they can, they can do it. On Wednesday, a federal judge issued an order to block the ban. It now goes to the Fifth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals, which had denied to block the ban in an earlier case. For the Daily Texan Audio, I'm Laura Morales. Music from Blue Dot Sessions, 
protest soundtracks come from NBC News Archives. Written story on the Daily Texan website by Kashiki Roy. <laughs>